You know, I was thinking maybe this time, just for kicks and giggles, we might talk about American Graffiti. Uh, that, that's a pretty good movie. I've seen it. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that. What's better, if we if we really want to get up close and personal, I've lived it. <gasps> Perhaps you should tell the people who you are. <laughs> oh, are we starting? My, my name is Brett Stillo. I am a podcaster. I do a lot of those movie-by-minute podcasts you may have heard of, where I've, I've talked uh, five minutes at a time about Buckaroo Banzai, or rather the adventures of Buckaroo Banzai in the Eighth Dimension. And I've also talked about Big Trouble in Little China, two movies that have interesting correlations and parallels. They sort of exist in the same W.D. Richter universe. And I would say I'm also a, a filmmaker and an occasional music teacher and I write a lot about cheeses, but that's I'd rather not get into that. How are you today, Tierney? You know, I'm doing pretty well. I don't think I'm going to be able to loop cheeses into this podcast episode. That's all right. That's all right. Okay, I just wanted to set expectations early. I didn't want you to be disappointed halfway through when you're like, geez, she's not bringing it up. Dear listeners, instead, we're going to talk about American Graffiti, specifically the part where Buddy Holly's That'll Be the Day is playing as Carol gets into John Milner's car. Yes. So we're not quite a movies by minute. We're rebels no. here. Yes, we're, it's about the songs and the movie, which are, as you know, uh, this is the seventh song you've covered now? Indeed. Yeah. You know, this movie is, as you, you may have noted, it's in, in a way it's a musical. It's not a musical. It's all sort of happening through radios and loudspeakers, and it's 1962. And this is a very special song for me because I'm a big Buddy Holly fan. Thank you for selecting me for this honor. <laughs> and I'm a big American Graffiti fan, and I have been on that street in this city. I was going to say, you said you lived this, and I'm like, I hope not in 1962. How old are you? Well... Um, well, this is where it gets complicated. Because <laughs> I'm just kidding. You don't have I'm, to get that person. I'm 57, and if, may I may I give you a little backstory on this? My own personal history with this movie. Please do. Okay, so number one, I grew up in Novato, California, a mere 11 miles from San Rafael, California, where much of this movie was filmed in 1972. So that's uh, 4th Street. This particular scene is 4th Street in San Rafael. I hung out a lot there in my teenage years. I believe we're close to 4th and Luton's near A Street. Uh, I'd never noticed this before, but when the uh, the piss yellow deuce is parked there, uh, mm -hmm. I, you can see a camera store that I... It's no longer at that location, but I think the owners are still maintain another camera store down the street, so... Oh, you do my heart such good. I looked up all the stores in that little... The, the three storefronts that we uh -huh. see, and when you put in Marin cameras, all you're getting is fire stuff. Yeah. These days. Yes. I hate to correct you, but it's actually, it's Marin cameras. I understand Marin. what you think it was Marin, okay. but it's Marin. This is Marin County, California. This is north of San Francisco. If you've probably been talking so about the locations. you're saying my idol from Raiders is not a subtle nod to the beautiful county that George Lucas lives in. Uh, Marion? Marin? Uh... George Lucas is not known for his, like, creative name. Dis uh. <laughs> you know, you know, having, again, having grown up in Marin and, you know, just as a side thing, not to brag, you know, as, as teenagers 
George Lucas was a little like Bigfoot. We would occasionally, you know, he, <laughs> my best friend in high school was the manager of a Taco Bell and Lucas would come in there. And so we, he, we, he was around, we'd see him. And the, the, it was, it was a little like, you know, spotting the, the Yeti, you'd be quiet and you wouldn't run up to him because he'd run away. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but yeah, there, you know, you do have these, you know, I'd never thought of that, but it's possible Marion was some anagram of Marin. I'd never thought of that. So that's that's quite possible. Or it's that, also th- entirely possible they have nothing to do with each other, and I just made that up in my head. <laughs> it works. It works for me. So Marion. All right. Marin. So Marin, like a marimba that's been cut off. Got yeah, it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And that's Fourth Street. And as late as the early '90s, kids were still cruising there, partially inspired by American graffiti. So I myself did a couple of circuits on Fourth Street in honor of John and Steve and all the gang and Terry the Toad. But we were probably listening to John Cougar Mellencamp, so not as cool. Okay, so let's talk about the actual scene itself before we get into the song, because I feel like I'm just going to let you roll at that point. (laughs) (laughs) They're driving around. Uh, Yes, John is in his piss yellow two scoop uh with his thx 138 license plate we get a nice shot of yes a very clear shot of that and that was chosen because there were not personalized license plates in california at this point no not what you got (laughs) yeah so probably a prop i guess yeah well and like I think this was the closest, since you can't give him a cool personalized license plate, this is the, you know, you can work in a nod using that. You know, it's a little bit more subtle. Um, The other license plate is JPM351. I just want to give a shout out to Harold Wexler and his, or Haskell Wexler and his lighting here because I can actually see the cars. Oh, (laughs) yeah. As a not a big car person, sometimes gets a little dicey identifying and it's like, okay, not only... Does that look right? But I can see the license plate and confirm that this is a 1955 Studebaker. Oh, yeah. Uh, specifically, President State. I love in the script, he just writes the Studi. Oh, yeah. That, that's, yeah, Studies. That's the definite nickname. Beautiful, beautiful car. I believe you, you know, one thing when you watch American Graffiti, you know, limited budget. So they only had maybe 20 cars. So I think you see that Studi, you know, parked. In another scene later with the Pharaohs. And uh, I know for sure there's uh, like a 57 Chevy that appears in the background. You know, it's it drives by Milner. Uh, it's in the parking lot of the used car lot. It just, you know, oh, hey, yeah. it was a, it's a low budget movie. But, you know, they're beautiful cars for sure. And including that Studebaker. Yeah. Lucas talks about like, hey, if you show up with a car, you can be an extra. <laughs> because they needed that. Uh, One thing that I love is I was researching these. First of all, they were made in South Bend, Indiana, which shout out to A, my family history in Indiana, but also uh, the other movies by minute I did recently on Close Encounters, where we spent a lot of time in Muncie. The other thing that I love is that I put in Studebaker, President, State. And uh, what came up was actually... A Wikipedia article on the president of Studebaker. It didn't take me long to realize my mistake there. But what I love is that the wiki little lead that displays uh-huh. includes the phrase spared no expense, which if you are an older millennial like me, your brain is exploding right now <laughs> thinking about Jurassic Park. <laughs> 
You don't often see that phrase in the wild, not a reference to Jurassic Park. But it's there in the article on Albert Erskine. Erskine? Yeah, Albert Erskine. The president of Studebaker. So I got to say, you got me here because I thought that was a Studebaker hawk. That particular Studi was the Studebaker president, which is a funny name for a car because that image is an old man behind a big desk. It's yeah. it's not necessarily something automotive. It doesn't flow. It's it's like calling a car the pillar or the cornerstone. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's it it doesn't it doesn't but you know, I mean, anyway, it's a bu- it's a beautiful car. Yeah, I'm just double checking. There's a couple Lark- Studebaker Larks in here. I'm just looking. Uh, this is the Internet Movie Car Database. Love that site. Listeners, please visit that site. You'll find out all kinds of cool things, especially about this movie. Okay. Now, the French person who comments on all of these cars says Studebaker Champion, someone else's Galaxy, someone else's Commander Deluxe. So, like, literally every... <laughs> model has been proposed of are you sure but it says the script looks more like president than commander let's change it pending pending descent <laughs> the only exterior difference between commander regal coops hardtops and president state coops hardtops is the hood ornament rear fender nameplates and trunk lid nameplates president has a gold tone fender nameplates in the front portion of the hood ornament is also gold colored i think you can just make out the gold tone in the photoed car increasing my confidence that this is a president state it works for me but i i can tell you among <laughs> among car nuts i know them's fighting words there'd be blood on the floor over it's a president it's a commander kapow are you insane look at the shape of those tail lights well, I will say that as of this recording, if anyone has an extra $25,000, there is a Studi- uh, 1955 Studebaker President State in Teal for sale in Florida that I would very much enjoy. So, you know, obviously, we don't run a Patreon, we don't make money off this podcast, but if you feel like buying me a car, you know, just hit me up, I'll send you the link. Or My address for delivery. Yeah. <laughs> Especially in what teal. What a perfect color for that car. It looks real cool. Oh, I can imagine. Perhaps someone would, you know, liberate it for you and just then present it to you as a gift. Then you can be, you know, you can f- just totally play innocent. I don't know. Somebody just brought it to me. It just appeared. You know? And speaking of innocence, can we talk about Carol? Speaking yeah. Of Carol and her little skip as she goes over to the car. Right. You know, I, I hadn't. I hadn't thought of this before, but I really identify with Carol here because I was about her age when I first saw this movie. I was about to become a teenager and I was trying to figure out what being a teenager meant and what would be expected of me. And here she is trying so hard to be grown up when she's, you know, 12 or 13. And, uh, you know, it's funny. And you mentioned Marianne Ravenwood and, you know, I hadn't thought of this before. Mackenzie Phillips and, uh, oh my God, uh, just... Blanked. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, I, how many points do I get deducted for that one? But Karen Allen, they, they could play sisters. They should have played sisters. I'd have watched it, it. Yeah. Either way, you know. And, and you know, she's wearing, what is it? I think it's a Dewey Phillips 
Uh, nah, Dewey surfing. Weber. I oh, Dewey am Weber. currently wearing a Dewey Weber, Weber t-shirt inspired by Carol. <sighs> I looked up finally a couple years ago. I was like, I wonder if Dewey Weber still exists. It absolutely does. They make beautiful surfboards. Uh, and they also do still carry. Now, you cannot currently get a shirt with the logo big on the front like this. But oh. it's the small logo on the front and then big across the back. Oh. So, you know what? Mine doesn't fit right this this way but i bet if you got the right size and had the right body type you could just turn it around no one would notice i've had friends who did that you edit this if it gets too long but i'm mm-hmm. go deep i'm going on a tangent <laughs> <laughs> ding, ding, <laughs> spread ding, out ding. going on a tangent because yeah you know, back back in the '90s, you know, my buddies and me, we were all getting into like classic original surf stuff, hot rod stuff, and we've like, been buddies. <laughs> you, you're a buddy now, and you're—I mean, you're wearing a Dewey Weber shirt. That's that's awesome. But you know, one of the the thorns in our side, you know, the Achilles heel for us was we would, you know, we'd like we'd go to the Moon Eyes. Uh, site or the store, you know, the moon racing equipment or Big Daddy Ed Roth. He was still making shirts, but it was this whole like older hot rodder thing with like, yeah, I just want a little logo on the front of the shirt mm. and put the big loud thing in the back because why? You know, it's like wear it proudly. What you're gonna, you think you're gonna scare the kids? I mean, it's like. <laughs> They can't handle this logo. Yeah. So that was, I I feel your pain because you, you want that crazy cartoony character in the front so the world can see what a nut job you were uh, or, or you are. Are you familiar with the Society for Creative Acronism? No. You know, they're kind of like the extension of the Renaissance Fair. Uh, you know, staging jousts and wearing, you know, medieval garb and cosplaying, if you will. And uh, I had, I knew what I was getting into, so I wore my Ratfink t-shirt. And just the, you know, friend invited me to his, you know, to his tent. I'm like, okay, okay, dude. And, you know, just the, you know, oh, what hell, good sir? What is that rodent upon ye shirt? And, uh, yeah, it's, it's Ratfink, man. You know who it is. Anyway, that's, that, that's another tangent. I'm sorry. We're, we're, we're in, uh, Modesto, California on, in, uh, we're the last in States. We're in Modesto, California. Mac- 1962. Mackenzie Phillips is wearing a huge Dewey Weber shirt. She was horrified that she spent the entire film in a shapeless t-shirt and jeans. Never mind the fact that she is still my style idol and I adore her. This was a conscious choice. When she gets into the car, you will notice that both John and Carol are wearing white shirts. And that is not an accident. That is because George Lucas knew that he would be filming them in many low light areas. (laughs) They are in this car. Later this movie, they're going to be in the junkyard. And he needed them to show up on the film. Yes, a white t-shirt. So both of them are in white shirts. (laughs) A white t-shirt is practically a bounce card. And so it's, yeah, it's very nice for nighttime lighting. I'm, I'm sure Haskell was, yep. Wexler said, hey, yeah, more white shirts. Everybody wear white shirts. <laughs> Everyone wear a white shirt. And so, yeah, and she has her little straw purse and she does the little skip when she gets over, which I love. Um, yeah. This scene, the meeting in the car, is what you will find if you look up the screen test for Mackenzie Phillips and Paul Lamott, which I highly recommend. In fact, maybe I will figure out how to put it on our Facebook Listener Society because if you've ever wanted to watch 12-year-old Mackenzie Phillips 
and I don't remember what age he was, Paul Lamont, in all his 70s stash hair sideburns glory, (laughs) do this scene in a modern like Trans Am. It's amazing. (laughs) And they do it many times from both (laughs) both angles. And it is like, I cannot watch this scene now. I'm hearing those takes in my head. (laughs) That's wow. In a Trans Am. Then, then it I don't beca- know. There's yeah. a Trans Am, but that's the. Right. I got to see this. Era. <laughs> yeah, and again, it it would be uh, yeah, like a 1971 Paul Paul Lamont. It's pretty glorious. Yeah, she was 12 when filming was happening. Now she never actually answers how old she is. According to the script, Carol is 13. Uh, Mackenzie Phillips was 12. She was cast. Uh, I believe she was in a band or she was at a performance of a band. Um, but the casting director spotted her. And said, hey, you know, basically, do you want to audition? And I believe it was her mother was with her and did the, well, you know, she's only 12. And of course, every 12-year-old just takes that as an absolute challenge. <laughs> so <laughs> right. she auditioned, won the role. Uh, she was, like I said, only 12 when filming. And so I just read somewhere and I need to, it comes out of one of the George Lucas biographies, the Mythmaker one, which I think is a pretty authoritative source. I've seen other things linked to that before, you know, reference that before. Uh, that to be on set during filming, her legal guardian was technically Gary Kurtz for a couple for a month there. Why <laughs> her not? Parents actually signed her over, and Gary Kurtz became her legal guardian, so that her legal guardian was on set. <laughs> Makes sense. Mormon movie producer, stable as the Rock of Gibraltar. Why not? I just, I just want to, I'm not going to go too deep. Um, (laughs) Mackenzie Phillips, by her own account, by the time she was filming this, had tried cocaine. I don't know how deeply she was into it by that point. But if you know anything about her history, she's going to get very deeply into it after this film. So, but she said she first tried cocaine at age 11. So, she is already immersed in the Hollywood stereotype is how I would nicely put that. Oh, you know, just cruising through Laurel Canyon, you know, living life in the fast lane by the Eagles, which hadn't been written yet, but it's, it's coming up. So, but yeah, you know, it, it kind of takes me back to Mackenzie, you know, freaking out over what, you know, over a costume. You know, I can kind of see if you're 12 years old and 72, probably want to like a real cool gunny sack dress or something like that. But, you know, and how what a kid thinking she was cool in 62 would wear and how in 72, that's just like, oh, that's terrible. <laughs> I mean, yeah, because I think Carol looks, yeah, she looks like a cool beatnik kid. Yeah. She's 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 ready for a cafe where, you know, it's a drag, man. It's a total drag. And, you know, for all that I have just said, like, she's 12 going on 20 sort of thing. She plays this teen so well. The, the when she goes, everybody hates me. I'm just like, oh, my God. <laughs> You're such a teenager. Right. Every every teenager is convinced everybody hates them. <laughs> I hate you awful all. Awful rule of life. <laughs> yeah. And anyway, I hate all of you. And then you run out of the room, but you can't because she's in a she's in a piss yellow deuce. So. Yeah. Really quickly, you mentioned because uh, they show when the cars pull up next to each other and then pull away. You get this really great view. It's uh, Marin cameras. My- yep. <sighs> <laughs> That's okay. Wrong every That's goddamn right. time. Dalden, D-apostrophe-A-L-D-E-N, could not find that, but there is an Alden shop in San Francisco selling fancy shoes. Yeah, that sounds, yeah, that sounds about right. California Canadian Bank, which is now a part of Barclays. Yeah, 
I don't remember California Canadian Bank. I, I never deposited my allowance in there. But, you know, that's it's funny. That's kind of the Marin County and the San Francisco Bay Area. I remember in the early 70s, you know, far more little like sort of little boutiques and, you know, small chains. Marin was your classic commuter suburbs. It's everybody worked in San Francisco, then they went across the Golden Gate Bridge. And so, yeah, you had these little satellites of popular shops in uh, San Francisco. There was a, there was a big chain called the Emporium. That was sort of the Northern California version, the Macy's or something like that. So yeah, when I watch this movie, it's kind of a double time warp because I, th- <laughs> I think back to, you know, this place I literally grew up in the 60s or in the 70s. But then this movie is totally about my parents and their friends. They also grew up in a central California farm town, little north of Modesto. This place was called Chico, but it's it's the same kind of farm town and they were car kids. And one reason why this, I think, movie fascinates me is my parents and their friends absolutely flipped. They didn't know who George Lucas was, but it was as if they, you know, they made a movie about us. You know, mm-hmm. they could, my parents knew real life Terry the Toads and real life John Milner's. And for them, it was very much like, like, wow, this, you know, the intention of this movie in some ways was a documentary. And for them, it was like, yeah, you know, this, this was us in 1962. Oh, which is such a nice contrast because my dad lived through the actual ice storm and he hates that movie. <laughs> <laughs> Like, that's not what it was like, for the love of God. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that I get. For me, this movie was kind of a breath of fresh air when I was 12, because, yeah, kind of like comparing your life to a movie, my real life was dazed and confused. You know, that was the world happening around me. There were, you know, I knew lots of kids with older brothers who, yeah, were mustachioed and and driving Chevy Novas (laughs) and trying to convince me of uh, why Nazareth was the greatest band in the world. Not that they're not, but... Uh, you heard it here first, first yeah, folks. Yeah, I got no gripe against Nazareth, but when it's force-fed you and, uh, you know, Montrose, big band in the Bay Area that featuring a lead singer named Sammy Hagar, but now I'm just dropping names. Rings a bell. Yeah, yeah, you might have Sammy Hagar. You may have sampled one of his fine tequilas, but... <laughs> Yeah, I, I, you know, my, the world around me was like dazed and confused. But then I, at 12 or 13, I saw American Graffiti and I just said, I want to go to there. And I fell in love with the simplicity of a two minute rock and roll song. Segway. (laughs) Segway Segway. to a two minute rock and roll song. Two minute, what? Two minutes, 18 seconds. Buddy Holly and the Crickets. That'll be the day, which, you know, you can't hear it in, it's featured on the soundtrack, so you can't hear it on the radio, but the Wolfman has that amazing segue, which maybe you've heard if you've listened to the soundtrack. You know, he's, it's a it's a crank call. You know, where are you calling from? Little Rock, California. Oh, what are you doing out in Little Rock? Uh, all we got is you. And uh, the intro's playing, and then the Wolfman says in somewhat reverential tones, the late, great Buddy Holly. Again, that was music, you know, my parents' music. They never really embraced a lot of 70s stuff. They, you know, true to their hearts, they liked old rock and roll. So kind of to put into perspective, Buddy Holly had only been dead for about 15 years here. So it felt when I was growing up, you know, I was trying to think, you know, when did I first hear about Buddy Holly? I can't remember. It seems like he was just always in 
well, his music was always in the house. You know, they were always talking about him. You know, for my parents' generation, that was that was a real shock, you know, the day the music died. Yeah, one of their idols dies in a plane crash? That doesn't happen. You know, it's that real quiet time uh, between World War II and Vietnam or Korea and Vietnam. And, you know, it just still, still felt like it had just happened. And uh, you have this awesome song by Buddy Holly. 1957. 57. What have, what have you learned about? The crickets. Yeah. What have you learned about this song? Well, I didn't look up too deeply into this song because I knew we talked about it. But I did want to... I knew the bare bones of Buddy Holly, but I was like, I should know more than like what's referenced in American Pie. One of my favorite bits of trivia that I found out is that his last name, so Charles Harden Holly is his yes. legal name, yes. but Holly has an E in it. Yeah. And what I love is that it literally was just misspelled by Duck at one point. He's like, sure, let's run with that. Yeah. <laughs> That's a, that's a funny thing about about Buddy Holly's career. There's sort of little little accidents or or not even accidents. You know, Norman Petty as producer, putting himself as a song, giving himself songwriting credits and things like that. And there's fact and fiction gets blurred a little bit. But yeah, this this kid. I mean, he's only 21 or 22 here, and he, out of Lubbock, Texas, this nowhere, nowhere. But it, it's it's funny there. There's something in the dirt and the wind because I think partly because of Buddy Holly and his friends. You know, he, a lot of songwriters came out of Lubbock. Uh, you know, later you have Jimmy Dale Gilmore and Joe Ely who are big in the Austin scene oh, in yeah. the 70s and 80s. You know, but they're like, I mean, it kind of makes sense that they they grew up idolizing Buddy Holly. But yeah, you got these, you know, you got these guys in Lubbock. Maybe it's the fact that they don't have a lot to do. They just listen to the radio and play guitar. Lubbock's and the original Seattle. <laughs> yeah, kind of. And a little bit of, the, you know, The Last Picture Show, if you've ever seen that movie. You know, it's just... But you got this guy who's listening to a lot of country and Western guys, Hank Williams and Lefty Frizzell. And I think with this song, you hear Buddy's early country and Western influence. This is a great rock and roll song, but it's... To me, it's kind of a country song that he's updated after hearing like Carl Perkins. We've run into a couple people so far, artists. Seems either you're coming... <laughs> Let me super simplify this. Sure. Seems either you're black and you're coming out of R&B mm -hmm. or you're coming out of country. And rock and roll is where these two are meeting. Yep. Which works for me. Yep. I do love... Just the way it was worded in the bio I was reading, where it's like, you know, open for Elvis in whatever, 1955, uh -huh. and then decided to make a career of music. And I'm like, well, yeah, opening for Elvis might do that for you. Yeah. And that's only two years. That's insane. Like, you look at Buddy Holly's career, and it's insane how fast this all happened. Oh, yeah. Yeah. In two years, he... Like how many songs does he record? How many? Oh how much God. stuff does he does? Yeah. It's it, he leaves an amazing body of work in a brief time, and yeah, he's he's only twenty three. It seems seems like he's been in the business for like ten years. But yeah, you know, when I was going back and listening to this song and other things, it was a good reminder to me that you know, rock and roll is this thing that kind of happens. You know, like what is this? Oh, okay. And yeah, he he opens for Elvis, and you know, he's probably that's probably pretty impressive for he and the Crickets. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, he, here you kind of hear where he takes one of his older songs. Like, okay, yeah, if I if we speed up the beat a little bit and we you know we heighten the guitar because if you've heard the you know, he recorded That'll Be the Day a couple other times, and it's far different. It's a little more okay. of a country song. I've been to those songs. Yeah. Again, you can kind of hear more of the, you know, maybe 
trying to be like Hank Williams. And if you look at the chord structure of this one, compare it to, say, uh, Lost Highway or any Hank Williams song, you kind of hear it's it's a little more of a country song. He's just, uh, he's given a little more of a rock and roll beat to it. But still, I mean, you know, it is Buddy Holly and the Crickets. And that's important because this is also the prototype for a rock and roll band. Uh, again, because of the course of his career, he sort of becomes the name in the front. And, you know, the, the crickets go back to Texas for a little bit to recover from touring. So then he becomes Buddy Holly. But really, this early stage, it's it's a band. It's four guys uh, working together who are, you know, in, inspired by a, a chirping bug in their Lubbock garage. And there's a, a, a movie tie in the with this song that I love, if, if you know where they got the title from. Wait, I thought I knew where you're going with that sentence, and now that's I worry a, I'm wrong. Well, that's okay. I just, I just didn't want to, you know. So they're interesting full circle with this one because Buddy and his, and his buddies, oh, that's it, Buddy and his buddies. So they, so they go see a John Wayne movie, uh, The Searchers in 1956. And, you know, Wayne has this line he keeps using, you know, when somebody says, uh, yeah, you should give up, you should go home. You should quit. He says, that'll be the day. So all these, you know, these teenagers coming home from the movie, they're they're doing their worst John Wayne imitations. And uh, they just thought that was a cool line Wayne said. So they said, well, yeah, let's, let's make that the title of our new song. I never, wow. Yeah, that's, that's. I that totally is, missed that. It's an, op, it's an obscure one. But I, I just also love that because The Searchers is John Ford. That's a movie Lucas was studying. Uh, a lot of people say, say, if you're a fan of Steven Spielberg, you're going to want to eventually watch The Searchers. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, the first time I saw Star Wars, see, I, I, yeah, I, I was, I just happened to be a, fa- be a big fan of The Searchers. And, you know, Tatooine is so much like right out of The Searchers, a definite inspiration there. So, you know, kind of comes full circle. And there's a song that was inspired by the movie and da, 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 and it all, uh, it, it's all interconnected. Even Mary Tyler Moore gets involved. Uh, well, if Marion Ravenwood was my idol growing up, my mother worshipped at the altar of Mary Tyler Moore. So I need to hear this. Uh, there, there is an interesting connection between Buddy Holly and Mary Tyler Moore. Would you like to hear it? Of course you would. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> so, Sonny Curtis, a guy you don't hear of that often, but a great songwriter and one of Buddy Holly's best pals, I believe... In the early days in Lubbock, they had a radio show called Buddy and Sonny. Kind of fits, right? But That's adorable. Yeah. He was like an on-again, off-again cricket. And actually, after Buddy died, Sonny sort of took over for Buddy for a while and uh, wrote one of my favorite songs, period. I Fought the Law, the greatest cricket song that Buddy Holly didn't perform. So Sonny, you know, Sonny Curtis, ton of stuff, wrote, wrote for all kinds of, you know, country stars. And in the late 60s, he wrote a song that I believe was featured on a solo album he did called Love Is All Around. Don't need to fake it. You can have the town. Don't need to make it. So Mary Tyler Moore and Grant Tinker picked that as the theme song for her TV show. So when you hear the Mary Tyler Moore th- song, you can thank Sonny Curtis of Lubbock, Texas, best friend of Buddy Holly. It's all interconnected. Part time, a part time cricket. I want that on my resume. Yeah, part time cricket. cricket. Yeah. So yeah, you know the crickets are just so important because they they kind of offer for a lot of kids the complete package. We're a band. We write our own songs. We perform our own songs. You know, as cool as Elvis was, he never picked up a pen and wrote a song. If you have not listened 
to the actual original recording of Hound Dog. Pause this podcast. Come back later. We need your downloads. But go listen to that instead. Are you talking about Big Mama Thornton's Hound Dog? Thank you. I was Googling it as I said that because I was like, if I say the wrong woman, I'm going to be so pissed at myself. That's all right. It's hard to get the the names. You know, there's so many names to keep straight. I knew it was Big Mama, but I couldn't remember her last name and I didn't want to embarrass myself on this show. Uh, Yes, Big Mama Thornton's Hound Dog is life-changing once you realize like, oh, suddenly this song actually makes sense in a way that it never did for Elvis. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's that's part of what's going on is you have R&B performers who are keeping it real. And it's it's pretty incendiary and it's dangerous. Uh, you know, I was, t- I was talking with actually a friend of the podcast, Pete Mummert, about the Coasters, their early r- recordings, you know, a riot in cell block nine. And they're just, you know, early Lieber and Stoller. We're just, they're just laying it out. It's, it's very incendiary stuff. And then, you know, Hey, you know, white kids want to hear this. Yeah, so they kind of have to tone it down and make it cute, but there's still kind of this element of danger to it. So yeah, like a good example, I think, is you get Big Mama Thornton Hound Dog, which is a song that you actually feel the beads of sweat coming down. That's a hot, hot song. And then you have the Elvis Presley song, which is... Which is fun. Yeah, it's totally... It's fun. Yeah, that's that's what it is. It's fun. But I, I think... At some point, if you are American, at some point growing up, you looked at your friends and went, what the f*** does hound dog mean? You ain't never caught a rabbit? Like, what the hell is going on here? Yeah. Like, you have to question it. All of a sudden, you're like, this makes no sense, actually, if you think about the words. No. And then you listen to hers, and you're like, oh, yeah. gotcha. <laughs> Ding. Yeah. And it's, again, it's, it's the secret code in this 1950s society. I was going to say, again, listen, listen to the coasters. They were always, well, you know, something to remember. When you, when you hear a song about a cool cat, uh, that means he's found the heroine. He's cool, man. Yeah, that's okay. He doesn't need a fix. He's got a fix. He's cool. Take that, jazz lovers. <laughs> Listening to uh, Louis Armstrong. Why can't? Why can I only think of Bang a Gong? That's not the song. <laughs> what is the? What is the one with the gong? <laughs> Kicking the gong around. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 That's another one that you do not get when you're twelve. No. No, you just uh, um, <laughs> like these lyrics make no sense. Yeah. Then you become eighteen. And you're like, oh. oh, yeah. Suddenly, waiting for the man isn't just a really great solo. <laughs> no, he's not a cab driver. Let's just say that. Yeah, Turns but out. yeah, but it's it's also it's I think it's you know it's you, on one hand the songs are silly and you kind of take them at a kid like level, but then yeah, there's that. That revelation, that discovery. Yeah, because, you know, it's sort of, you know, you can enjoy them twice. There you go. It's like hearing them again for the first time. Exactly. Yeah, fresh ears. I One last thing I wanted to say about That'll Be The Day. I love this song, but, you know, it's it's an interesting song because it's, it's not really Buddy Holly yet. This is a great breakout song for him. But again, he's, he's kind of adapting... Um, maybe borrowing a little from Blue Suede Shoes by Carl Perkins. It's, I don't think it's featured on the soundtrack, but, you know, a month after That'll Be the Day, they released Peggy Sue. And, you know, mm. in, in getting ready for this podcast, I, yeah, I listened to a bunch of Buddy Holly. And that song is amazing. I mean, that song is 
Jerry Allison, a great drummer, just laying down this insane surf beat. And you hear, that's where you hear the, the Holly guitars, that galloping, strumming. He's playing cowboy mm. chords and it's, uh, it's very Texas. It's very Western. You, you know, that song kind of sounds like a stampede. And I was trying to imagine you know, hearing that song for the first time in 1957 and how that must have been, you know, whoa, this is different. This isn't Party yeah. Doll by Buddy Knox. This is like, wow. I think this one, is this one famous purely, not purely, obviously, um, but because it then gets twisted into this will be the day that I die, singing my, my, this well, American guy. That's, I think that's definitely a factor. Like, would that'll be the day be the iconic and obviously there are many multiple iconic buddy holly songs sure would this have faded away a bit more if it were not so prominently featured in the song about the plane crash that killed buddy holly yeah i i'd say that's definitely a factor that you can't ignore but you know it's like i said it's also the breakout song i think it is his biggest hit and it's you know it's definitely not a bad song but it's just you know that again that that crazy trajectory we're talking about with his career. He just had, you know, this this one just opens the door and then he just, you know, runs in with a Stratocaster that's on fire. And uh, <laughs> That should be a t-shirt. There we go. But There's our merch. <laughs> as long as <laughs> it's in the front. An open door with Buddy Holly running in with a Stratocaster oh, yeah. on fire. Yeah, totally. With, yeah, with this, it's got to be in the front though. It can't be like a little cartoon of Buddy Holly in the room. We want a big... Ed Roth style cartoon of Buddy Holly with, you know, with his eyeballs popping out and Tom, Ke- a, a Tom Kenny model for Buddy Holly. You know, the people it, have spoken. <laughs> the people have spoken. Let's get to work on that. But yeah, but still, still, it's a great song. I don't want to, I don't want to sound like I'm poo-pooing, but that'll be the day. No. And I really like it for this scene because I feel like the cadence of that'll be the day matches cruising really well. Like Peggy Sue, like you said, sounds like a stamp. Like that does not match driving around all night. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas that'll be the day is like, it's upbeat. But it is, it's got that mellow to it. Yeah. You're just sitting back, just driving around. And I think, driving around. We'll yeah. find him again. Don't worry. Yeah. And it's funny because we're talking about Carol. There were, there are probably other songs. If, if Carol could have had any say, uh, not Mackenzie Phillips, but Carol, you know, like, no, I want, I want, uh, I want a Beach Boy song. And I was like, you know, that'll be the day is well, kind of we'll like, get there. Yeah. <laughs> Right. Yeah, that's coming up. But, you know, I feel like it's there's a theme here, you know, because, yeah, here's this preteen who desperately wants to be older. And, uh, you know, yeah, here is this sort of John Wayne-esque character who uh, is is kind of stuck in time. And so, I don't know, without without getting too metaphoric, I think that'll be the day kind of fits them perfectly in various ways. Well, that's a beautiful note to end on. I don't think I'm going to top that. <laughs> sorry. So. <laughs> we could take five and you could come back with something. Don't be sorry. <laughs> but yeah, love the movie, love the song, love the car. I was going to ask really quickly, uh, 
you mentioned you first saw this movie when you were about Carol's age. Was it a big screen situation? Sure was. It was, I, th- I think it was a re-release, which was, you know, far more common in the 70s. So I didn't see it till like 76, 77. But yeah, my parents were really excited about seeing it. And, mm. uh, you know, that was just, you know, pre-video cassette kind of thing. It's like, oh, let's see it again. It's been a while. You know, maybe they were kind of thinking, you know, yeah, he's ready for it now. And it's, uh, I certainly He'll was. be all right. <laughs> yeah, he'll, you know, because yeah, I, uh, like I said, it. <laughs> in retrospect, maybe it messed me up because- <laughs> You know, I, I I didn't want Stairway to Heaven. I wanted Johnny Be Good, and uh, that that sort of made me an oddball <laughs> among my peers for the, the years to come. But uh, I I turned out fine. I have no regrets. There you go. Yeah, I remember because my dad had seen this, and I had decided I was obsessed with George Lucas and wanted to see everything. And he was like, "Not THX," and he was like, "American Graffiti's fine." And then he went. Right? And he you could tell, it's very clear to me, he only really remembered the cop car scene. Like, that is what had imprinted on him when this was back when, again, you'd see the movie in a theater, and then maybe you'd see it again in a theater someday. You didn't watch them over and over again. So he's, like, trying to remember a movie that he knows he's seen, he knows he enjoyed. Uh-huh. Um, he grew up in Southern California when he was a kid before moving to Connecticut. And so he's, like, trying to remember how much sex is in there, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, I got really into film and convinced that I was going to be the next George Lucas. And this was right at the end of elementary school through middle school. Oh, nice. And so, yeah, that was my kind of like, I'm kind of messed up, but I think it's okay. Where it's like, I got to high school and it's like, so who wants to talk about Animal House and the Godfather? And they're just looking at me like, I'm sorry, what now? And I'm like, (laughs) does everyone not get these references? You should. Okay, cool. (laughs) What do you mean you have not been allowed to watch these movies yet? Is it not normal for a 13-year-old to have seen these movies? (laughs) So yeah, we're fine. We just podcast now. It's fine. We're better than fine. We're better than fine because, you know, we had early, early role models who showed us the do's and don'ts of buying alcohol when you don't have (laughs) a license. I would have never have thought of mashed potatoes as a weapon without Pluto Blutarski. So that's important. Very effective. We made it. We, we podcast. Did it. We're all good. We're good. Yeah. We do other things too. We do other things. Uh, not right now. But yeah, I mean, you're, you're going to go on to minute eight and I can't wait to hear minute eight. And then you'll do minute nine and there'll be, there'll be more songs. But I'm just, I'm just really happy that I lucked out and, and got a Buddy Holly song because he was musically a big influence on me after I picked up a guitar and started to try to play it, you know, in my teenage years, but hadn't really listened to Buddy much lately so it was yeah but it was a nice reunion and you know kind of real you know learning some new things i didn't know before about buddy holly so thanks it did me good i was really glad to pick this as our summer movie for 2021 because this is just there's the nostalgia factor it's fun like you can just kind of you know there's there's plenty to talk about but you can also just kind of relax and enjoy the movie yeah and it is arguably the first modern summer movie. It's so weird to think that summer... Well, I have a I have a great Summer of 72 story to kind of illustrate... Oh summer of 72. Uh, my parents, we moved to Novato, California, a very suburban community. And uh, I finally get to, you know, live out my dreams of, you know, what I'd seen in like sitcoms. Like, hey, can I... Re- 
does we're in the burbs now. Can I ride my bicycle to a movie theater? And they're like, you sure can. <laughs> now, granted, this is, I'm eight and this is 72. I can tell you in the summer of 72, I really wanted to go to a movie. And my parents really wanted me to have that experience. Sure, you can go to the movies. Here's a dollar. And I looked in the paper at what to see. And these were my choices. Cabaret, Deliverance, a Bergman film, uh, I Think About the Plague, and I think Shoot the Piano Player with Charles Osnavour, and Play It Again Sam with Woody Allen. Well, every eight-year-old is yeah. excited for. And my, you know, my parents were, I remember them looking at the paper and like, isn't there a Disney? No, not yet, but there's no Disney's right now. Oh, gosh. You know, I asked, well, well, what about this cabaret? And I said, well, it is a musical. Yeah, but it's not that kind of musical. And they didn't want to say no, but <laughs> they, at the same time, they were just, gosh, Brad, I don't, these are real grown up and I don't think you'll like any of these movies. And I was, so I, I can't go to the movies? Well, it's not like you can't, but you're not going to like Deliverance. <laughs> <laughs> so... I remember that story vividly because that's what movies like American Graffiti and to another extreme, you know, The Exorcist, uh, though I wasn't ready for that one either, but... They changed the landscape. Yeah, they changed land. And of course, Jaws and the creation of what we now take for granted as the summer movie. You know, there were summer movies, but they weren't necessarily kid or teen friendly. It was it was movies that were, gosh, podcasting about that changed that landscape. So yeah, this is kind of the first summer movie. And uh, the rest just started to pop out one by one. And this really was the first of the... Uh... The one crazy night teenagers. Exactly. Stories. Would you like to tell listeners where they can support you in your endeavors? Oh, I, you know, I wander around. I'm, I'm a bit like John Wayne in The Searchers. I just sort of wander from podcast to podcast these days. I, I'm still working with my partner, Josh Horowitz. We, we have a couple of things we're, we're planning to do, but you can always go back and listen to our five-minute digest shows. You know, we were the rebels we're like, minute a day, forget that. We're going to do these five-minute weekly digests. This is the way to do it. We were groundbreaking. Uh, so we got five minutes of Trouble. We got five minutes of Bonsai. And I think I mentioned those two uh, movies. 80s, wacky, sci-fi, meta, horror, action, kapowie kind of movies. 35-millimeter comic books. If I may, can I shout out another podcast that I'm not directly involved with? Oh, sure. Speak Easily versus the 80s. Ooh. That's my wife, Audra Wolfman, and her team. They look at a different 80s flick. Uh, they do a, an episode where they just, you know, they, they tear it up. They just recently did the Andy Sidaris epic Hard Ticket to Hawaii and uh, Night of the Comet they did recently. So that's, I highly recommend you check that one out. It's, it's a little weird. They spend like an hour on the whole movie. One episode. Yeah, they, but it's, but it's action packed. My goodness. Yeah, isn't that crazy? Well, I mean, yeah. Brett, it has been wonderful talking to you, but I need to go sit in a dark room and think about my life decisions. <laughs> you you do what you need to do. I do what I'll do what I'll need to do. And uh, I, I look forward to hearing the rest of these episodes. Yeah, no, I'll keep doing uh, I'll keep doing one yeah. song at a time. I like it. <laughs> yeah, that's a great idea. And, and of course, thank you for having me. Well, it was a pleasure uh, to talk to you. Thanks for coming on. And uh, yes, as Brett mentioned, I will return. For our eighth episode. Don't worry. Possibly even a ninth. The sky's the limit. 
He's really fast, isn't he?